church. We're so glad that you're a part of uh, us today. And, you know, Summit Church, we love you and we're so thankful. And, uh, you know, Janae and I just want to say thank you so much for last weekend and uh, pastor appreciation. You guys are too good to us. And we're just so thankful for our team. We have so many pastors on this team that we appreciate so much because they just work so hard and, and serve well here at Summit. And, and we just want to thank you for being a part of the church. You know, God is good and he's doing really good things and lots of people are giving their lives to the Lord. And I think over the last three, four weeks, we've had over 15 people give their life to Jesus. And I think that's a powerful thing. And, and uh, we just got through baptizing 12 people. I mean, aren't you glad that we serve a God who cares about us and he loves us and he gave himself for us so that we could be saved. And so we're continuing our series today uh, called Celebrate, Jesus is Coming. And uh, today we're going to talk about the church of Pergamos and maybe the church of Thyatira. But we want to get right into this because I want us to be able to really glean and extrapolate all that God is trying to say to us from these uh, passages of scripture. And so uh, we're going to take a text this morning and uh, I want you to read with me and then we're going to pray together and then we're going to get right into the word. And uh, it's important that we grab a hold of the principles that God is teaching us right now. And uh, after we're through the churches, if we still have time, uh, we will start talking a, a little bit more about some of the uh, symbolic things that we see in uh, Revelation and maybe talk a little bit about the timeline, but it just depends on if we if we have enough time to do it. So we're going to try to get through a couple of churches today, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> you never know. So let's read a scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and I want to read it out of the New Living Translation and read it with me, if you will. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Let's read that last part again. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Father, I'm just asking that your Holy Spirit will just empower us today. I'm asking you to anoint us today to understand and to receive your word. And God, that your word will cause us to grow and it will be applicable to our lives and it will be practical to us today so that we can become everything that you desire for us. Lord, cause the fruit of your spirit to be born in us. Cause the gifts of your spirit to be manifest in us and help us to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love you with everything in us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful that Jesus is coming. I'm so thankful that he is. You know, we've talked about the second coming of Jesus. We talked about the rapture of the church. And then, then you know, to give you just a semblance of a timeline, there's going the, the, the next big prophetic thing to happen is the rapture of the church. Then the, the great tribulation. And in three and a half years in that tribulation, the abomination of desolation will happen in the temple in Israel and uh, then there will be uh, an Antichrist that comes on the scene and, and uh, uh, all kinds of judgment will happen on the earth. The second coming of Christ as a result of that, the battle of Armageddon, then the millennial reign and, and then uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And so all of this is to come in the future. And once the first domino falls, the rest of them will fall in succinction very quickly or very uh, uh, 
immediately after each other. And so right now, God is being patient. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter, and the reason he hasn't come is not because he's not coming or because he doesn't keep his promises, but the reason is because he's being patient, that he would have as many people be saved as possible before he raptures the church and before he judges the earth. And so it's very important that we understand that. It's very important that we also understand that we do not know the time or the hour, that it is, it is absolutely imperative that we get the fact that we're not supposed to know when Jesus is returning, but that we're always supposed to be ready for his return. We should live like um, that we're, we're going to live. We should live our lives like we're going to live forever, but we should, we should uh, be watching and waiting as if Jesus is going to come today. It's just very important that we live with that kind of urgency that we occupy what Jesus did when he was here. We should be living that way right now so that when he's come, we will be ready. He'll find faith on the earth and we will go with him in the rapture. And the dead in Christ will rise first. First Thessalonians 4 says, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I can't wait for that day. And I'm glad that we serve a God who keeps his promises, that he does not fail to come through. Uh, Abraham and, uh, and Sarah uh, said that they did not look back. They did not uh, uh, quit believing. They, they stood on the promises of God because they knew he who promised is faithful to do what he promised. And Jesus told us that he is coming again. And so we do not know the hour or the time, but here's what we do know. We're closer to that time than we've ever been. And we should live our lives as such. And we can see the signs of the times all around us. All the signs and the things that Jesus said would be happening are happening right now. And we need to be thinking about how the direction of our culture and the direction society is moving. And we should be thinking about what our role should be in the context of that. And it's important that we think this way because we need to develop an urgency. We need to move out of any kind of love of the spirit of this age and move into a total, committed, sold-out love of God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we should rekindle the passion that we have for Jesus. That we should, we should rekindle the commitment we have towards His kingdom and His purpose. That we should not be average or mediocre Christians in this time. That we should be all in, full on, 100% moving forward for the kingdom of God. That is his desire for us. That is the will of God for us. And it's never been different. It's not that God has changed his mind. It's though that we may have been distracted or changed our minds in the way that we approach him. So it's time for us to return and repent and remember who God is and what he's done for us and what our role in our relationship with him is. And so knowing all of that, I want to go and, and talk to you about the church of Pergamum. It's also called Pergamus. And so this is the next church we want to look at, and hopefully we can get through this church and the church of Thyatira before we are done today. But the church Pergamus, is, it was a faithful church, and uh, it was faithful like Smyrna in the face of persecution. However, it dealt with something different. Not only was there persecution externally, but there was an infiltration of wrong philosophies and ideologies into the church. And so it became, it was a faithful church, but it also was allowing for compromise in the church. They meant well, but 
They tried to ride the proverbial fence, if you will. And we all know that it doesn't work that way. That we cannot walk on both sides of the line. Christianity just doesn't allow for that. Jesus, when he told us to follow him and he was calling disciples and he was on this earth and he was saying, follow me. He was saying that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He said in one place that if we start to follow him and then we look back or we take, we put our hands to the plow and we look back, we're not worthy of the kingdom. We'll find out later in, in I believe the church of Laodicea that he would rather us be lukewarm. I mean, would rather, rather us be hot or cold than to be lukewarm. He doesn't want us to be mediocre. He doesn't want us to be tepid. He wants us to be full on, worth uh, uh, the purpose that he has for us and walking that out. There is no riding the fence here. There is no middle ground. We need to be full on for God and no, not allow for compromise or mediocrity spiritually in our lives. This should be a challenge to all of us. There's no one under the sound of my voice right now that this should not convict, including me. We should all be convicted by this. We should all be challenged by this, that there are some ways in our lives that we have compromised. We have said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk the line here. I'm going to kind of be in the middle. I'm not going to be so radical or so dedicated or so committed. I'm going to allow myself to be distracted by certain things. It's important for us to understand full-on Christianity, living for Christ, following Christ, doesn't work that way. Jesus wants us to be 100% given to Him. It's kind of like the parable He told of the man who found the pearl of great price. He went out and sold all that he had so he could purchase that. In other words, he gave up everything else for that pearl. And that's what the gospel is. We have found the pearl and we should be willing to literally put everything else on the back burner and pursue that pearl. You know, uh, I read a story just recently as I was studying for this message and it was about compromise. And <laughs> it's, it was about a, a, a bear hunter. And this, just, just imagine, if you will, a bear hunter, he goes out into the woods and he's got his gun and he's looking for a bear, he's hunting for a bear. And all of a sudden he's in a clearing and out of the woods comes a bear. And the bear stands up in front of the, the, the bear hunter and he says, hey, uh, hold on just a second. And of course, after you get over the shock of the bear talking to you, he said, what do you mean, hold on a second? He said, let's. He said, what are you wanting? What do you really want? He said, the bear hunter said, well, man, winter is coming and I, I need a fur coat. And, and the bear said, hey, all right, let's negotiate this. You want a fur coat? And, 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 and he said, yes, that's right. And, and he said, and he asked the bear, well, bear, what do you want? He said, well, I want a full belly. And, and so they started talking about it. He said, well, let's find, let's see if we can find a compromise. And so the hunter puts his gun down and together they walk in the woods. And a few minutes later, the bear comes walking out by himself. He got a full belly and the hunter got a fur coat. The problem with compromise is that someone always loses. We should be looking for win-win scenarios, not win-loss scenarios. And when we compromise our values, when we compromise our morals, when we compromise our purpose in the kingdom of God, what we're doing is we're giving up ground to the enemy. Whether we realize it or not, and whether we want that to be true or not, it is the truth. And we all know it. No one has to tell us that. We know it. 
So there's, a, there's this challenge that's coming to this church, this church of Pergamos, that says, look, God commends them for several things, but then he says, this is a problem. You've allowed certain things in that have to be pushed out. Jesus introduces himself as the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. Like I told you last week, for every church, he looks at the problem of the church and he, and he introduces himself with the characteristics as the solution for this church. And so what he calls himself in this uh, church, to this church, he's, he introduces himself as the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. And so let's read our text again. We'll read it out of the NIV and then out of the NLT. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. In other words, the, the word of God is not just some book, some education, some information. The word of God is alive and active. These are words that proceed from the mouth of God to us, not just once as they were written on the page, but as the Holy Spirit inspires them, as we read them, they become alive to us and they regenerate our soul and renew our mind. He says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In Hebrews, it reads like this, and we'll just read that last part. It in, the, in the New Living Translation, it says this, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What this church needed more than anything was Jesus to be that double-edged sword to them that sword that would open up their hearts open up their motives open up their minds and let them see where these issues of compromise were taking them because sometimes that's what we need you know we really always want to hear good things we want to be built up we want to be strengthened we want to hear good news and that's good and we should but there are sometimes that good news isn't always news that's soft and it isn't always news that's easy because good news is not just about the news that's being given. It's about the result after the news is heard. And, and sometimes we need to hear, sometimes we need a little sword. Sometimes we need a little piercing of our soul. Sometimes we need a little conviction in our spirit that says, hey, this is who you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. I have made you a new creation. Old things are passed away or behold, all things are new. And you need to be aware that you have allowed some things into your heart. You have allowed some things into your mind that need to go. And that sword penetrates our heart and exposes those places and then eliminates them from our lives as the Holy Spirit goes to work in us. And every one of us need this. If we want to look at some background at the church of Pergamum, it was a dark place. If you read the, the passage of Scripture, we'll read in just a moment, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about this is where Satan's throne was. In, in other words, you know, the Bible talks about we wrestle not against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual darkness and rulers of the darkness of this age. It's talking about Satan and his demonic hordes. Let's get it straight. Satan is not managing hell. Hell has been created for the devil and his angels. In other words, because of their ultimate rebellion, God created a place of damnation and separation from him that they will ultimately go to. And the people who will be tormented the, the, tormented the most in hell are not humans, although humans will go there that reject Christ. 
It wasn't made for them. It was made for the devil and his angels. The devil is going to hell to be tormented and to be judged at, at the end of time. But where the devil exists now is in the air. It's in the atmosphere. It's the devil is, the Bible says he's the God of this world, little g. In other words, there are demonic influences, spiritual influences in this world that are dark and they are not good and they're led by Satan and they are for the purpose of breaking down everything that God wants to happen in our lives. And Paul, or excuse me, John, Jesus giving John the revelation says, this is where Satan had his throne. In other words, he's saying this place was so evil, Satan himself was setting up camp in that place. It was a place of worship for Zeus and Dionysius and many, many more idols and false religions. It was a hub for false religion and, 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 and a hub for demonic influence. It was a dark and a heavy place. And the community was heavily influenced by emperor worship. Um, now, I, I want us to stop for a moment and just ask ourselves a question. How accepting have we become of demonic things and how, how accepting have we become of darkness and dark things things that are opposing to our spirit things that are are completely opposite of who God wants us to be and how God wants us to be and how much of that because it's coming at us so fast and at such a rapid pace that we have just accepted you know uh, I used to take my kids to the movies uh, a few times I did it on purpose not very often but we always would 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 make sure that if a movie went a direction we felt like was something that would be bad for us to take into our mind or take into our heart, we would get up and get our kids. It's a humiliating thing to do. It's a thing. It makes you feel embarrassed. It makes you feel like everyone around you in that room is going, oh, what's wrong with them? Why are they leaving? And probably people aren't thinking that at all. They don't have a clue why you'd be leaving. But the truth is we wanted our kids to know we don't sit and listen to this. We don't sit and watch this. This is not something that we will be okay with. And my question to us is not that we're some kind of weird people and legalistic and we're making all these laws and rules, but we have to ask ourselves how much of our culture, how much of what goes on in the world, how much sin, how much darkness have we allowed in our lives just simply because we're tired of fighting it? Just simply because we're weary of dealing with it, weary of talking about it, weary of wondering about it. And also because our culture, like we talked last week, has put so much pressure on us to just accept it and be quiet. And we just cannot do that. They were in the middle of this place and they were being affected. And what ended up happening, the problem with the church at Pergamos, was that the spirit that was on the outside somehow was allowed to get on the inside. The spirit of the age that existed so fully out in the world became a part of the church. And there was one major reason. And the reason was, reason was a misunderstanding of a word. And the word was love. So here we have this church that's in the middle of this demonically influenced Community that is so filled with false religions and deception. We understand deception, don't we? I mean, it's going on. It's a ramp, rampant move. I mean, look at all the terminology and the language. They tell us that 
Culture is found in the language. And so what words we use matter. And look at all the words. I don't, I'm not going to go through them today. But if you were to sit down and think of all the words that we use in our culture today that do not mean anymore what they originally meant, you can see the direction that culture is trying to go. There's a deception that is happening in the world today. We understand Pergamum. We understand what this church must have been going through and what it must have been feeling. We get it because we're living it right now. But the problem is the church was also being influenced by wrong-minded philosophies that had infiltrated the ranks of the church. It was being allowed for them to talk of, speak of, embrace philosophies that were not Christ-like. And so Jesus had to deal with the church. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, also known as Pergamus, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. In other words, he's saying on the outset, I have the sharp double-edged sword. And we read in Hebrews what that is. It's the word that exposes the heart. And so Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamus, I'm getting ready to expose your heart. I'm getting ready to open things up. I'm going to give you a chance to see what's really going on inside you so that you can make the adjustments necessary for you to be everything I want you to be. Oh, God, help us. Help us today. Help us today. Be very careful that we're not embracing a message of grace. We believe in the unbelievable grace of God. And we believe that no matter what you've done or where you've come from or the sins that you've committed in your life, God's grace is sufficient to save you, forgive you, set you free. I believe in a grace with all of my heart, but I don't believe in a grace that preaches that it is not, grace is more than just a cover for your sin. Grace is an enablement, an empowerment for you to overcome sin. And I don't believe in a grace that continue to, that, that some t- somehow teaches us that we are to stay in sin and it's okay. Because that is not what the Bible teaches. And, and, and we sometimes do that with this emphasis on love. In other words, we're being loving if we don't if we don't allow ourselves to be convicted. Be very careful that when we're fighting against condemnation, which we don't believe anyone should be under condemnation, condemnation means to be finally judged. It doesn't mean to feel bad about sin. It means to be finally judged. And in this, some of this thinking about grace, people are literally being convicted by the Holy Spirit and because they feel bad they feel like i am not living the way i should this is not who god created me to be this is not what god saved me for that's conviction by the holy spirit to remind you and convince you of your righteousness and you have to remember and repent and go back but there are some that are teaching that anytime you feel uh, guilty or shame in terms of sinfulness that that's condemnation and it's only condemnation And the devil is doing that. Be careful. Be careful that you're not calling conviction, condemnation, and shrugging off the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, listen, you need to make a change here. Hey, listen, don't go down that road. Stop, stop, stop. Don't go down that road. That's going to destroy your life. Hey, listen, you need to grow in this area. Don't start receiving that as condemnation and saying, I'm not receiving that because I don't want to feel bad. Come on. 
Just embrace the fact that your heart needs to be realigned with God and you need to repent and get your life right so that you'll be walking in the fullness and the power and the, and the uh, purpose of God. I hope everybody understands and doesn't misunderstand what I just said because it's very important. I know where you live, Jesus says. Let's continue to read. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Oh, man, he's speaking good words over Pergamos right now. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which you've are, we've already talked about in, in Ephesians, in the church at Ephesus. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Listen, <clears throat> it seems paradoxical what he's saying here. It doesn't seem like these two things could exist in the same church. Because in one hand, he's saying, I know where you live. In other words, I get it. You're living in the middle of sinfulness. You're living in the middle of a dark, dark city. You're living in the middle of heavily influenced, demonic influence and false religions. I get where you live. I know that that's where Satan makes his throne. But you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So, so he says, I get it. And I commend you for for being faithful. But then he goes on to say, there are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak to entice the Israelites. So he's saying, you remain faithful on one hand. And on the other hand, he's saying, you have compromised. Well, which is it? Have they remained faithful or have they compromised? And I want you to notice very clearly what he says. He says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Is it possible that we can not renounce our faith in God, but allow ourselves to add things to our faith in God? We live in a world right now where a lot of people are trying to create a, a, a scenario religiously where we embrace many forms of religion to be polytheistic in our thinking or in our religious affiliations in other words i'm going to take a little bit of christianity i'm going to take a little bit of islam i'm going to take a little bit of uh of, of buddha i'm going to take a little bit of confucius i'm going to take a little bit of new age philosophy and ideology i'm going to take a little bit or actually in a lot of cases a lot of humanism and we're going to put it all together and that's the way we're going to serve and you say well no way. Who's doing that? A lot of people are doing that. And they may not even be formally doing it that way. They may not be saying, I'm going to consciously do this. But what is happening is we're allowing a lot of ideologies, philosophies, and mentalities to get into our thinking that then 
water down our faith and create this multiple religious ideology faith. In other words, instead of me just being only true to Jesus Christ, I am being true to Jesus Christ and some other thoughts and philosophies. It cannot work. It does not work. Jesus is very clear. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, there would be no religious ground for, for saying that Jesus is the only way if he had stopped there. But he didn't stop there. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no human comes to God except he comes through me. He cannot come any other way. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that there is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved than that of Jesus Christ. It is very clear that we cannot add to the gospel. Jesus himself says, and especially in the book of Revelation, at the end of Revelation, it says that people will be cursed that try to take words away from Revelation or add to Revelation. You cannot do that and it be okay. So what was happening here is this church, even though they were faithful to the name of Jesus, they were allowing some in their ranks to be a part of the church, to embrace the church, but to, to, um, to assert philosophies that were antithetical to true doctrine and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and didn't Paul the apostle even say of himself, if I or anyone else comes preaching another gospel other than that what we've already preached to you, let them be anathema or accursed. We cannot allow ourselves to allow the world's philosophies, the world's ideologies, false religion to infiltrate our thinking or our mind, and especially not secularized religion. And what is that? Humanism. In other words, a, an ideology and a thinking that elevates humanity above all things and dismisses the idea of God altogether. We cannot allow those kind of thinking in the name of esteem, in the name of whatever you want to call it, encouragement, to, to be a part of our thinking. We cannot because what it does is it waters down our faith, it deceives people, and it causes this compromise in us that causes us to, yes, we may in name say we follow Christ, but we're allowing certain things. And that's what was happening. God was looking at this church as a whole. And he was saying, there are some people in this church that you are allowing. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with this. Do you remember when Jesus would talk to the disciples and he would say, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Do you remember that? He would say that there's a little bit, and they would say, what are you talking about? Making bread. We don't understand. What are you talking about? And what he was saying is, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching wrong thinking. They were being, they were, they were, they were dismissing God and and holding to the religious law. And they were saying that this is how it has to be. And they had added so much to what God had already established. And, and so they were trying to control people and manipulate people. And he said, You've got to be careful and not be deceived. And he said, if you put a little yeast into some bread, it will cause the whole bread to rise. It only takes a little bit. It only takes a little bit to cause an effect. When we allow into our doctrine, into our thinking, into our church life, wrong ideologies and wrong philosophies, and they go unconfronted, what we're doing is we're saying that 
that we are willing for the church to be deceived. We are willing to, in the name of love, and not wanting to hurt anyone's feelings or not wanting to deal with anything that's going to make people feel like they're wrong, we want to just ignore it. And what God is saying to us is you can't ignore it because if you ignore it, it will start affecting the whole church. And it won't be long that the church of Pergamos will not be faithful to the name of God anymore, but they will give in. And what you see here is this attempt to, to love and they really were sincere in their love, but it wasn't, it wasn't that their love wasn't real. It was that the way they were interpreting what love was is real. It's not real when you redefine a term. Love has been redefined in our culture. But do you know what I know? The Bible says that if, if God corrects you, and it says this in Proverbs, it says it in the New Testament, if God corrects you, He does it because he loves you if a father does not love his children he will not correct them because he doesn't care how they turn out he doesn't care if they get it right he doesn't care if their life is successful or not so if he doesn't love them if he doesn't care then he doesn't even bother but a father who loves his children will correct their lives, will make sure they're doing things in a right way, will lead them and guide them and model for them what right is and what truth is and what good is and what beautiful is. And we cannot allow ourselves to give into this idea that love is this non-confrontational, very um, emotional feeling. And love can be so emotional. It should evoke passion in us. It should inspire a fire in us, a love, a care, a deep compassion. Those emotions and those feelings are real and they should be had. But love in and of itself is the selfless consideration of another. It's a putting of another before you. It's caring so much that you're not allowing someone to fall into a place uh, that's going to hurt them or harm them. My daughters, when they were little, I remember having with both of them as toddlers, we would do everything we could by, uh, for if we had boiling water on the stove to keep them out of the kitchen and move the handles back. But with both of them, I can remember very little giving them very serious conversation. You will not touch this. Don't you reach up on this stove. Don't you touch it. And here's why. It could burn you. It could devastate you. It could affect your entire life. And when we're going down a wrong path and when we're believing things that are not true and when we're embracing philosophies and ideologies, God is saying to us, don't touch the boiling water. If you pull that over on yourself, it's going to destroy your life. It's going to take you out. It's going to be the end of your mind and your heart and your spirit and your relationship with me. You cannot find yourself doing this. Don't put your in a position, self in a position where you would ever even consider rejecting me. Make sure that you're holding fast to the things that I have taught you. Listen, we can't allow this kind of thing in the name of love and, and calling love tolerance. I never understood that word tolerance anyway. It means putting up with. <laughs> I'm putting up with you. The, the truth is it, love is not tolerance. Love is care. Love is compassion. Love is I'll stand in front of a fire for you. Love is I'll push you out of the way and get hit by the bus myself. Love is I will snatch you up even if you don't like it if you're about to hurt yourself. 
That's what love is. Love is action. Love is faithful. Love is kind. And we need to understand that's what love is. And love does not just turn its head when someone is hurting themselves. Love does not just turn its head and not confront when things are being spoken that are not right. And that's what was happening in this church. And let's ask ourselves, what were the philosophies that were infiltrating the church? Man, when we read this, we're really going to we're really going to see it. We're going to see we're going to see it's an, there's an attempt for this to happen right now. He said, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. They faced a moment where Antipas was a, 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 a martyr. And because he stood for Christ, they killed him. The whole church knew it. The whole church mourned over it. They were sad about it, but they didn't give up. They didn't quit. But because of this idea of love, they still were not confronting things that need to be confronted. He said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. One, there are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam. Well, who is Balaam? Do you remember Balaam was that guy who had the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament? He was a prophet. And there was a king named Balak, and he saw the children of Israel and how they were growing and how God was on their side. And he knew that Balaam was a prophet, and he said, hey, let's go get Balaam and have him come, and he can curse the children of Israel, and that way they can't defeat us. And so, Balaam, you know the story. He, he, he says to them when they come to get him, God speaks to him and says, don't you curse the children of Israel. You only say what I put in your mouth. And he told them, I can't curse them if God says not to curse them. I can only bless them or I can only say what he puts in my mouth. So uh, he said, I cannot go. And then they came back and they offered him a lot of money and they offered him a lot of things and they offered him a lot of stuff. And he was a greedy person. He was a person who wanted power and he wanted, he wanted material possessions and he wanted influence at a high level. And so even though he knew in his heart he could not curse Israel, he went ahead and went anyway. And it's the funny story where he's on his donkey and there's an angel standing in the way that he can't see but his donkey can. And the donkey stops and he won't go forward. And, and Balaam gets mad at him and he's come on and he's kicking him and he's hitting him and he won't move and finally he gets him to move a little bit and then instead of going forward he moves over to the side and he crushes Balaam's leg up against the rock in the in the in the in the side of the mountain there or whatever and uh Balaam cries out in pain and he gets off and he starts beating beating his donkey so mad you idiot and and just telling him how bad he was and then all of a sudden something happens that you and I would probably freak out and run for the hills but his God opens the mouth of his donkey and his donkey starts talking to him his donkey says why are you hitting me haven't I always been faithful to you haven't I always been good to you why are you beating me and that would freak us out but I tell you what freaks me out even more is Balaam starts talking back to him as if it's a normal thing. And he's like, man, you crushed my foot up against the wall. And then all of a sudden, God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees an enormous angel with a sword drawn that if he comes past this point, he's going down because God had told him don't do this. So then he starts thinking, oh, thank you, donkey. Thank you, donkey. That stop donkey I'm so appreciative donkey that you you didn't take me all the way and but then he still wanted to go and God allowed him to go but then when he got there he spoke he spoke words of blessing because that's the words that God put in his mouth 
And King Balak was so angry. I told you to curse them and you're blessing them. You got to stop. I don't want them to defeat us. You've got to curse them. And he couldn't curse them because God wouldn't allow him. But he wanted the money. He wanted the possessions. He wanted the fame. He wanted the influence. He wanted to be celebrated by this king. And, and, and so he, he went around God and he told the king, here's what you could do. Send some of your most tempting women, young women, down into the ranks of Israel and 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 get them to be immoral get them to have sex with these women get them to be adulterous and fornicate and God will judge them as a result and that will stop them from defeating you and that's exactly what he did so what this whole idea this philosophy of Balaam was is using the things of God to benefit yourself using uh compromise and ways of getting what you want and and compromising your morality and compromising your righteousness and compromising your relationship with God because of personal desire for gain to be benefited yourself and 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 putting if you will the relationship you have with God on the blocks in order for you to have what you want and these people were infiltrating the church and what they were doing is they were enticing, they were enticing the church to embrace wrong thinking about sex and about false religions and about all of these other things, immorality. Now think about that. Right now, we're, the world is trying to convince us that we have to accept the way things are. That we have to accept that sexual immorality is just the norm. And a lot of people will say, you know, that we've got to accept people for who they are. Listen, we always accept people and we love them. But if we care about them, no matter what sin they have, whether it's sexual, whether it's lying, whether it's deceitfulness, whether it's adultery, whether it's, you know, whatever sexual immorality that there is, whether it's greed, whether it's avarice, whether it's rebellion, we are going to love people and care about them and ask the Holy Spirit to deal with their sin, ask the Holy Spirit to convict them, and we're going to disciple them and teach them the ways of the Lord, teach them the ways of the Word, and we're going to let God take care of judging. We're going to let God take care of dealing with sin in heart, but we're not going to set by and just go, we accept sinfulness. We accept this ugliness of humanity. We accept the things that God does not accept. We don't. We love people, but we don't love Love sin. We love people, but we don't. We hate sin. The Bible says we should hate sin. The Bible says we should hate sin. It, whether it's in us or whether it's in someone else, we should hate it. But we cannot allow our hatred for sin cause us to hate people who sin. And we all need to understand that. But at the same time, we cannot let the ideologies and philosophies of the world infiltrate our mind and infiltrate our thinking and become accepting of certain things, even though they're antithetical to the word of God, because it makes us uncomfortable or we have pre uh, or we have we have redefined what the word love means. We've got to be careful. We've got to stay true to the word. We've got to stay true. This is why God said, I'm bringing this sword to expose your heart, to let you understand that you're, you're, you mean well, but this is going to take you down. And I'm exposing this so that you can repent. The very next thing he says is repent. Why is sexual immorality in several of the churches 
this issue comes up, sexual immorality? Why has it come up so many times in the dealing with the churches? Why? Because it is a major form of deception. And because sexual immorality is unlike other sins, because you're not just sinning against God, but you're sinning against your own body. And it doesn't matter whether it's fornication or adultery or, uh, or homosexuality or uh, gender identity problems or struggles, whatever the case may be, sexual immorality is a problem that is destructive. And it's destructive not only in, in um, spiritual ways in the world, but it's destructive if we allow it to get in our minds. And one of the greatest struggles right now, before we point a finger at anybody else, we need to, we need to understand that one of the greatest struggles is, is what Jesus talks about in the New Testament. The Greek word is pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. And it includes all sexual immorality, bestiality and, 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 and uh, incest and all of these perverted things that most of us would go, oh, but we're hearing in the news a lot about a lot of that stuff lately, aren't we? And we're hearing these philosophies that say, let people be and let people do. And there's nothing we can do about people choosing those kind of lives. But we don't have to accept that that's normal or that it's okay. It's not. It's not okay for men to be addicted and women increasingly every day to be addicted to pornography. And, 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 and it's not okay for us to be accepting of pornography at lower levels either because oh well it's just a one scene or it's not a big deal or I'll turn my head or blah 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 but you're letting the ideas of it and the philosophies of it it's 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 not uncommon now for couples to think that somehow they're going to enhance their relationship by bringing pornography into their bedroom it's a ridiculous thought it's a ridiculous idea and when you sit back and think of the word and think of your relationship with God you know in your heart this is not right it's catering to my flesh and we don't understand we're being like Balaam so we've got to take authority over this and we've got to move in love to preach the truth and to stand in truth we love every person no matter what they're going through but we're not going to stand by and allow ourselves to be destroyed and others to be destroyed because we don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. Look, when I was a sinner, when I was living in sin, that was my lifestyle. I was a bad sinner. I'm just telling you, maybe I should say I was a good sinner. I was really good at it. And I was sinful in every way you can think of. And I'm ashamed of it today. I, I, I see it as wasted time. I see it as self-destructive behavior. And I'm so thankful that Jesus loved me anyway. And that Jesus cared for me anyway. And I just want to tell you that Jesus changed me. He changed me. Now, I can still sin, and sometimes I do. Not on purpose and not because it's my lifestyle, but because I accidentally did something that I shouldn't have done, or I, I went opposite of God, or I was rebellious, or my heart wasn't right, or I had pride, or whatever the case may be. And God's always ready to forgive but I just want to encourage you today we need to be faithful but not somewhat faithful and allowing some to infiltrate with ideology and philosophy that is wrong and antithetical to the word we need to stand true to the word of God 
We need to let the Word of God have its work in us. We need to let it change us. We need to let it renew us. We need to let it make us holy. We need to let it sanctify us. We need to let it purify us. If you're dealing with sin right now, you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with problems, whether it's sexual immorality or otherwise, it's the reason it's named so much is because it's so prevalent in culture and it's infiltrating into our minds and we're accepting it. Oh, it's fine to live together. Oh, it's fine to have sex before marriage. Oh, it's going to happen, so you might as well do it. Oh, it's fine to, to, to get a little flirty with other people. Oh, it's fine. We've justified and compromised. Come on, guys. we got to stop letting the spirit of the age invade the spirit of the church. We cannot allow uh, uh, any kind of deception that would in, indulge in any kind of false philosophy that would be connected to other religions or even secular ideology. We've got to stick to the Word because the Word is what gives us life. The Word is what renews our mind. The Word is what sanctifies our hearts. The Word is what changes us. And we want God to be able to look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. So the the, the personal application question here is this. Will my faith stand up like Antipas who gave his life for the kingdom of God? Am I tolerating the doctrine of Balaam? Am I compromising and calling it love? Am I greedy? Am I materialistic? Am I buying into philosophies that are not right? Am I corrupting the church to benefit myself? We can hold fast to our faith instead and in spite of these external and internal influences. And I can tell you as your pastor, I'm going to continue to preach the truth and I'm going to continue to love you and I'm going to continue to pray for you and myself and everybody who's a part of Summit Church because I believe God is doing something great in us and He's changing us. And sometimes we want to be built up and strengthened and this should build us up and strengthen us because it tells us this one thing and I close with this. It tells us that no matter what, God loves us and He will give us the power to overcome these things. But we cannot compromise our faith. We must stand strong to be faithful to His name and listen to me very carefully and be faithful to His Word. Father, we thank you today for this word and we ask you, God, to help us to like the church at Pergamos to be faithful to your name. But help us, Heavenly Father, to avoid the things that they got caught up in with the compromise. Help us to understand what love really is and not to redefine it as our culture has. And help us, Heavenly Father, to know that the sexual immorality that goes on in the world today is an attempt to destroy people's lives, to redefine how we are to live and how our families are to function. And help us, Heavenly Father, to reclaim purity and reclaim holiness and reclaim living our lives full on for you because we know your grace isn't just to cover. Thank God that it does cover, but we know it's also to enable us, to empower us, to live a life of righteousness. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.